One of the most important questions we can possibly ask of our lives is, why do I exist? What is the supreme purpose for my life? And that's a very important question to ask, and the good news is the Bible tells us the answer to these questions, doesn't it? The Bible has all the answers that we need. It tells us that we are created to glorify God. Now, that can kind of be a confusing statement in in and of itself. We can wonder, well, what does it mean to glorify God? And simply put, to glorify God means to magnify his glorious name in a way that is fitting to his supreme character. So we magnify him by bearing witness to the truth of who he is. And you look at the world around you, and the big problem in this world is that God's truth has been suppressed. That men do not give thanks to God. And so God, by his grace and his mercy, has opened our eyes so that we can see his supreme worth and excellence. And we can bear witness to his supreme worth and his glory. You might put it this way. We exist to bear witness to the resurrected and reigning Christ. Because that is how God has chosen to magnify himself and to show his supreme worth through his resurrection from the dead and his now present reigning over all things. But this is really only half the battle, isn't it? One of the questions we wonder is how in the world do I do this? How in the world do I bear witness to this Christ? We wonder, how can I even know this Christ? How can I live in such a way when when everything of this world is opposite of glorifying God? Everything is opposed to the glory of God. How can I possibly live this way? If this is why I was created, if this is why I'm here on earth, then how do I possibly do this? And before Jesus ascended, he told his disciples exactly what they were to be doing, bearing witness about him, and how they were to do it. He promised the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus told his disciples before he ascended, he says, your purpose in life is to bear witness about me. That is why you are here. That is what you're all about. And I am going to empower you to do this. I am going to give you the strength to do this so that you can accomplish what I'm calling you to do. And what we see is that this promise is being fulfilled in the passage we are looking at today. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise in Acts 2, verse 14 through 41. God is empowering his people to bear witness to the world about who he is. And you look at these scared, cowardly disciples who all of a sudden are now bold and courageous in their witness to who Christ is. And from here, the witness will go throughout the whole world, even to us today, won't it? And then we continue to bear witness 
about the one who is worthy of being proclaimed and of being magnified. That is our purpose as well, isn't it? Now, if God were to empower his apostles to bear witness to himself, the question is, how might he do this? What would it look like? What would God do in order to bear witness of himself? And just think about all the things he could do. He could do incredible miracles, cast out demons, part the the great oceans, right? He could make incredible signs in the heavens, right, to bear witness about himself. And to tell people about who he is. He could do anything. But what we see here is that God has chosen to bear witness about himself through a message. Through a message. Isn't that incredible? Of all the ways that God would choose to bear witness about himself, he would choose to bear witness through a message. Now, surely God has gotten their attention, hasn't he? Through the, through the uh, tongues of fire, right? And through the speaking of the, the languages and the tongues. Through everyone hearing their, their own languages being spoken. I mean, that would have gotten my attention. <laughs> it got their attention. It was kind of like the means to get everyone's attention so we can give the message. And it also confirmed that the, 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 the prophecy in Joel was now being fulfilled that all God says was now being fulfilled. This was confirmation that these things were taking place. And that was very important. But the primary way that they bear witness to Jesus is through a message. And not just any message, but a particular message. And so you might say, do you mean to tell me that God's great purpose is primarily accomplished through proclaiming and through preaching? And the answer is yes, Absolutely. God is building his church the proclamation of a message. In fact, 3,000 souls were added to the church through this message that we're looking at today. Now that is a miracle of miracles, isn't it? If there is a miracle, the message that God has commanded his people to preach is accomplishing the greatest of all miracles. And how often are we looking for something great from God and we're missing it? It is through the message of Jesus Christ. That is the miracle that God accomplishes today as he saves and builds his church. But this was not just any message. It is the greatest message of all. And so I want to ask, what made this message so great? What is so great about this message? And this message is so great because it is all about Jesus and his work. The message that Peter gives is so great because it's all about Jesus and his work. The message is not about the apostles. The message is not even about the Holy Spirit. The message is about Jesus. It's about the incarnation of Jesus. It's about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's about the resurrection of Jesus. And it's about the ascension of Jesus. And how he is reigning supreme over all today. That is the point of the message that we read. That he reigns supreme over all and therefore everyone is accountable to him. Everyone is responsible to this Jesus. And notice that that Peter never gets off target. 
He never moves away to secondary issues. He never tries to make his message somehow more palatable by giving some great stories. Not that stories are bad. They can be very helpful. But notice that Peter is focused on the message that matters. And I want you to understand that you cannot preach a better message than Jesus. It's impossible. There's no greater message. When I watch some kind of a movie or read, read a book, read a story, what often comes to my mind is there is no greater story than Jesus. You can't come up with a greater story. It's impossible. God has given us the greatest story of all. I'm always let down every time I read a story or watch a story. I'm like, there's a better message. This is the greatest message because it is also based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, this message is not merely less great if Jesus is not raised from the dead. You see, we have no message if Jesus is not raised from the dead. But if he is raised from the dead, then there is no other message. This is the only message. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then no other message matters except Jesus. And so the resurrection of the dead is not a peripheral matter. It's not a secondary matter. It's not insignificant. It is the only message that matters. This is the greatest message because it exposes the truth of man's condition. Throughout this message, I want you to listen and I want you to put your, put your focus on what Peter is trying to do. Peter is not holding back the punches. Peter is exposing the sin. Peter is taking the knife and cutting. He's trying to get to the heart. He's trying to expose the wickedness of the heart of the people he's speaking to. And the question is, why in the world would he do that? It sounds unloving. Because he knows they will not be saved unless they realize that they are sinners and that they need to be saved from their sins. And how often do we shy away from putting the cut, from putting the truth, the sword of truth, into our message because we're afraid of offending people? But that is the only way that anyone will ever be saved. And so Peter does not hold back. He speaks the truth of their condition. And I want you to see that he can give the greatest message only because he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The success of this message is based not on Peter's creativity, not because he was a great speaker, not because he was able to hold the audience's attention, but his success was based on the work of the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit works, and we need to understand something about how the Holy Spirit works throughout, the, throughout, throughout God's Word. The Holy Spirit always works to magnify God. He magnifies Jesus Christ before our eyes. That's what He does. He's like a spotlight. He doesn't call attention to Himself. He calls attention to Jesus Christ. And so how do you know that you are walking according to the Spirit? How do you know? You know if you love and cherish Jesus Christ. You know if you are loving him more and delighting in him and cherishing him and wanting to talk about him and proclaim him. That's how you know you're walking in the Spirit because the Spirit magnifies Christ. 
And so when Peter is bold and courageous to magnify Christ, you say the Spirit is at work in him. And when we see people loving and cherishing Christ, we say the Spirit is at work. He's doing a mighty and a powerful work here. There's something else that adds to the greatness of this particular message that was given. You, you need to see that the one who gave this message is only six weeks away from vehemently denying any association with the one he is now boldly proclaiming. Isn't that amazing? Only six weeks before this, had he denied and even cursed three times that he knew Jesus. And now he is boldly proclaiming his name. What, what could possibly be the reason for such a turnaround? What could possibly make someone so courageous all of a sudden? And this turnaround can only be explained because of the Spirit's work in his life. Now the resurrection was absolutely essential, Right? For the boldness of Peter when he saw the resurrected Christ. But he also needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we see here. The work of the Spirit of God in his life is enabling him and empowering him and, 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 and pouring out from his heart the message of Jesus Christ. And the same Spirit of God can do the same thing in each one of our lives. And that is what he works to do, doesn't he? That is what the Spirit of God is working to do in his people, is, is putting within our hearts a love and, 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 and understanding of Christ so that he is the one we love to bear witness to. So I want to look at Paul's, uh, Peter's message as an example of what it looks like to bear witness to Jesus. And the message begins with an explanation of a unique aspect of Jesus' life that made him stand out from all others. So God made it clear that Jesus was from him by performing works and wonders and signs through him. We see this in verse 22. Now, if you look at Jesus' life, you would look at his life and you would see, well, he speaks with authority, right? He uh, certainly walks according to the law of God, right? He's got this incredible love for people and authority in his speaking. But what really stands out about him is that he performs all these miracles. He raised the dead with Lazarus. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. Amazing, powerful things that he did. And that would make him stand out from everyone else. Otherwise, he was very much similar to everyone else, right? The question is, why was God doing these miraculous things through Jesus? Now, surely he was helping others, but there's a much greater reason for these things that he was doing. And it wasn't for the fanfare. It wasn't for the popularity. It wasn't for the fame. It was to validate the truth of who Jesus was. It was to show that he was from God, that there was something different about him. And some even recognized this in John 3, verse 2. They said, no one could do these signs unless God were with him. And what Peter is doing here is he is showing them by saying this, that they 
are without excuse. They know this to be a fact. The people who are hearing this knew that this was true of Jesus. They couldn't deny it. And so what Peter is doing is simply laying the groundwork for his accusation so that they will feel the guilt of the cutting edge of the truth that he is going to bring to them. Now, there's something about this message that you need to understand. This message about the crucified Savior was all God's plan from before time began. This was God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus be delivered to death on the cross. And we see that in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter is saying that God had a wonderful plan for Jesus' life, right? You ever hear that? God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Well, how about this? The perfect, the only perfect one, God in the flesh, the wonderful plan for his life was to go to the cross. If there is anyone who ever had the right to complain about their lot in life, it would have been Jesus. No one else has ever had the right to complain about their lot in life. Only Jesus had the right, and he never once complained. So is Peter really saying what it sounds like he's saying? Is Peter saying that God planned in eternity past for Jesus to suffer a horrific death? Well, yes. The death of Jesus was God's predetermined plan from all eternity past. This was not a possibility. This was not a maybe it will happen. This was a definite, not just a plan, it was a definite plan by God. Why might Peter need to make this plain? I mean, wouldn't this add confusion to his message? Don't you first tell them that they need to be saved and then you tell them that God is sovereign? Wouldn't this possibly confuse them and make things difficult for them and confusing? Well, they needed to hear that, that this was God's plan. Otherwise, they would have looked at Jesus' life and assumed that it was a failure. The Messiah was supposed to conquer sin. The Messiah was to, sorry, the, the Messiah was to conquer and win. <laughs> he did conquer sin. He was supposed to conquer and win. Everyone knows that winning is success and dying is failure, right? For him to die would have looked like a colossal failure and the greatest tragedy of all. Peter therefore needed to say this was always God's plan so that they would have understood that the cross was not defeat but victory. The Messiah must go to the cross or else he fails. This is exactly the plan of success that Jesus was to accomplish. This is not evidence against Jesus being the Messiah. This is evidence that he was indeed the Messiah. So here we come to the part of the message where the problem is exposed. Peter makes it clear to his audience that they are guilty of murdering the one who is clearly set apart for God. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Notice, Peter is not sugarcoating the problem. He's not making it easy for them. He's not trying to to kind of sugarcoat the real issue going on here. He's laying it out plainly for them and putting it on their shoulders. He says, you crucified Jesus as if he was a common criminal. And you accomplished this through Gentile lawless hands. Notice, Peter's not just blaming them, he's actually ramping up the blame. He's making it more, he's bringing more blame to their plate. Do you notice what he's been saying so far? He said, God made it plain to you through the miracles and the works and the signs that he was from me. He was absolutely clear that God had testified to who this Jesus was right in their midst. There was no doubting it, that he was from God. And now he says, you crucified him. Not only did you crucify him, but you knew that he was from me without any doubt. This made them more guilty, not less. So why would Peter be so cruel to make them look so utterly bad? Because he knows that there is only hope for them to be saved if they recognize and understand their sinfulness first. He must expose it. So what Peter is saying is that they are at odds with God. And that is their biggest problem. Peter's making it absolutely clear that they are at enmity with God, that they are angry at God, that they are at war with God. And the opposite is also true, that God is at war with them. Now, Peter is not saying anything new here. This is how it's always been. The way they treated Jesus is just a picture of the way everyone has ever thought of Jesus. The truth of the heart of all men was revealed through the actions of these Jews when they crucified Jesus. This is not a Jewish problem. This is an every person problem. This is our hearts. We want to get rid of Jesus. We want to belittle him. We want to kill him any way we can. We do this by taking him out of our minds. We do this by using words in vain. We do this by taking actions to kill him when we can. How they treated Jesus was an exhibit of our hearts. And here we have two glorious, what appear to be paradoxical points, don't we? Yes, this was God's plan. And yes, they were completely responsible for their wicked actions. These are both 100% true. God doesn't seem interested in explaining how they are reconciled, but he says they are true, and we must understand that. We need to understand that. But this message, thankfully, does not end here, does it? As every other person has ever died, Jesus, on the other hand, was raised from the dead. In verse 24. Now we're told something here that's contrary to everything that we know. Everything that is normal to us. Everything that is the way that things are supposed to happen in a fallen world. And in one sense, the resurrection of Christ, I think, has become so familiar to us, it really doesn't mean that much to us. But we need to be reminded of the significance of this. 
This is contrary to everything that is true about us. Jesus was raised from the dead. He conquered the greatest enemy of death. You have absolutely no power over death. It will defeat you. It will overcome you. But for Jesus, it was different. He overcame death. He defeated death. And notice that it's not just that he defeated death. There was no contest. Incredible words here. It was not possible for him to be held by it. So this was not a fair fight. You know, death had no idea what it was up against. When Jesus went up against death, death was without a drop of hope. It had no idea the battle it was fighting. Jesus supremely overcame death. He was infinitely superior to it. Death could not contain him because he was God and he was fully man. And he overcame it. Is this good news for those whom Peter was writing to? The answer is absolutely not. <laughs> you say, what do you mean? <laughs> How is this not good news? Well, they crucified this Jesus. They crucified him. And that's, well, that's not good, right? But what makes it even worse is he's risen from the dead. This is the worst news they could ever hear at this point. And I think sometimes we miss this. They need to feel the reality that this is not good news yet. There's nothing good about this. There's nothing worse that could be said than that the one they crucified is God and he is raised from the dead. And he's overcome their greatest enemy. <laughs> There's nothing greater than Jesus. He is Lord. And that's scary. So what is the significance of the resurrection then? What does it mean? The resurrection means everything Jesus said is true. Everything. The resurrection says everything that was said about Jesus by God is true. And everything he claimed is true. That he is greater than all. And we're going to get there. I got a little ahead of myself. We now move to the proof from their own scripture of the resurrection and what it means. So Peter goes way back to scripture. And he says, just so you know, this was actually prophesied in your own scriptures and foretold that he would be raised from the dead. And so we don't have time to go through it that deeply. But he quotes Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. And verses 25 through 28 shows them how the Old Testament anticipated the resurrection of the Messiah. And then he explains it in verse 29 through 31. Basically, David saw corruption. And he says, my soul will not see corruption. And so the question is, who is he talking about? And Peter says he was prophesying. He was prophesying about the Messiah. He was foretelling the greater David who would come and would have victory over death and would rise from the dead. And can you imagine them hearing this? Can you imagine them hearing from their own scriptures that this was actually foretold? And they would have known these scriptures. They would have been familiar with them. And now, now Peter is telling him, this was actually told to you. you. You read it all the time, but you never knew it. This has been incredible. Peter then makes a connection between the prophecy David made and what was happening at this very moment in verses 32 through 33. 
He confirms that what they were experiencing was the fulfillment of what David said was going to happen. He says not only did they witness the resurrected Christ, the apostles, but the, 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 the miracle that they were seeing in the, in the speaking of tongues and, and all the gifts that were poured out was the, uh, was the confirmation that Jesus was raised from the dead and was ascended on high. And then finally, Paul, Peter gives another quote from David from Psalm 110, verse 1, about the Messiah. But this time, he doesn't quote the Old Testament in order to confirm that Jesus was raised from the dead. He quotes the Old Testament to show what it means that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Psalm 110, verse 1, tells us that because Jesus is raised from the dead, what that means is that he is Lord. That he is Lord. That's what it means that he is raised from the dead. So now we move to the concluding point, because we got to get there. The concluding point is the obvious outcome of the whole argument. This is where Peter has been driving for in this whole message. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection confirms something. <laughs> something about Jesus. And what it confirms is that he is Lord. That is what everything in, that was said about Jesus, all the claims about Jesus, everything that the Father said about Jesus was that he is Lord. And the resurrection confirms that it is true. There is no higher language that could possibly be used to identify Jesus than that he is Lord in Christ. You cannot lift them any higher than this. This is the supreme position that Jesus is presently residing in. Notice as Jesus is magnified to his superior position, at this very moment, Peter pierces with the sword. His words pierce like a sword into the hearts of those whom he is speaking to. He says, they are the very ones who rebelled against this very risen Lord. Think of that. You crucified the Lord and Christ. He pierces them to the very heart. For Jesus to be Lord means that you are accountable to him. Everyone must reckon with the implications that this Jesus that we have all rebelled against is Lord. What does it mean that we've rebelled against him? What does it mean that we have turned away from him? What does it mean that we haven't given thanks to him? What does it mean that we have exalted and magnified ourselves and loved ourselves supremely? Is that a big deal? Does it matter? Well, we all have to reckon with the reality that Jesus is alive and he is Lord and that we are going to have to give account to him. A faithful witness must always work hard to magnify the truth of who Jesus is and to reveal where people stand in relationship with him. Comfort to those who are under his favor and fear to all who are not. This means for many who hear of the resurrection, it will not be good news. 
What more scary news can you hear than that you have rebelled against the Lord? So what is the response? Well, you can see this incredible response in verse 37. Their response indicates they heard the message. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And to say they were cut to the heart means they were feeling the conviction. It means the sword had pierced their heart and they were feeling the reality of what Peter had said to them. They actually heard the message. How often do people hear the message over and over and over again but never hear it? You don't hear the message unless you feel the conviction of God's word. And what is amazing is they get ahead of Peter here. They don't even wait for Peter to, tell, ask, to, to give the application of what they must do. They say, Peter, what must we do? And it's almost as if Peter is, is putting these heavy burdens on their back and they're being crushed by these burdens. And they're like, Peter, how do I get rid of the burden? How do I get rid of this? I'm being crushed by it. The sword is piercing my soul and it hurts. What do I do with this great burden? And this is how we know someone is understanding the message. This is the only humble position before God. Any other condition besides this will not lead to salvation. So what does Peter tell them they must do? Peter says they must raise their hands. They must come forward. Well, no, I'm, I'm kidding. He says rather they must repent and be baptized. They must repent and be baptized. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, it should not be surprising to you that Peter tells them they must repent of their sins. To repent is to acknowledge we're going in the wrong direction. And it's not just a head assertion that I'm going in the wrong direction. But it's a violent turning away from our sin. It's a hatred for our sin. And what is surprising here is he doesn't say they must believe. And I believe the reason is because faith and repentance always belong together. You can't turn away from sin and not go towards Jesus. And going towards Jesus is faith. And so when he says repent, what is automatically included in repentance is faith in Jesus Christ. And so he doesn't necessarily have to say faith. He can say repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and towards Christ. And so he says you must repent. You must turn from the direction you're going in and turn in the right direction towards Christ. They're this, the two sides of the same coin, right? Peter also tells them they must be baptized. And that can sound a little weird, can't it? How in the world is baptism associated with salvation? And we know from the rest of scriptures that baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's absolutely not necessary for salvation. The rest of scriptures are absolutely clear for that. So that's not what Peter is saying. So what is Peter saying? <laughs> He's probably saying baptism represents our forgiveness of sins. It's a visual picture of our salvation and a confession of our faith. It is an act of confession that is to follow closely behind salvation. Baptism should always follow behind our profession of faith. We don't need to be baptized to be saved, but if we're saved, we will get baptized. 
It is normative response to salvation. And I think we have missed the ball today, oftentimes, in church, and where we failed to encourage people and to call people to baptism. It is the command of the Lord, and we should never, ever dismiss any command that the Lord gives us to do. You got to remember, the thief on the cross was not able to be baptized, was he? But yet the Lord said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So throughout God's word, God calls for repentance. God, in his amazing grace, has given us a means to be saved from our sins. And that's the good news. What love of God, what grace of God. That's what we see here in, in verse 38b through 40. The good news. Peter gives the good news that belongs to all who repent of their sins. He says, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. This is the greatest news we could ever hear. The forgiveness of our sins. The greatest problem anyone ever has or has had. And I've said this over and over again because we constantly forget this. The, the worst news in the world. I don't care what news you have going on in your life that you think is bad. It might be pretty bad. But nothing compares to having sin that separates us from God. That is the worst position to be in in the whole world. And so there's no greater news than to hear that God has forgiven your sins. Amen. He says you receive the Holy Spirit. This means you'll be commissioned and empowered to bear witness to his name. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And who is this prom promise for? It is open to all who are near and far, Jew and Gentile, who repent. Right? That's our responsibility. And is limited to all whom the Lord himself will call to himself. And that's the sovereignty of God. So what are the results of the message? What is the fruit of the message? A harvest of 3,000 souls. And it says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You and I exist for a purpose. We exist to glorify God. And the chief way we do that is through bearing witness to the glorious and magnificent Savior who is Christ our Lord. We are to bear bold and passionate witness to the resurrected and reigning Christ. We have the greatest message of all. And we have the privilege of giving it out to everyone we see. This message we are to give is about Jesus and his work. That's the greatest message of all. This message we are to give is based on the resurrected Christ. The reason we have a message today is because he is alive and resurrected. You have a great message today because he is no longer dead, but is alive. This message will expose the ugly truth of man's condition. It won't be popular, will it? But it's the only message that can save people from the wrath of God. This message will call people to respond with faith and repentance. It will call for a decisive response. It will say you must repent and believe in Jesus. There is hope for forgiveness of our sins. What great news. What a great message. All who repent and believe will be saved. Maybe this message is for you today. 
The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if that is you today, this message will become your message. And this message will become your life. You and I can give this message boldly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask God today to give you boldness. Ask God to open your eyes to the reality and the glory and the greatness of who he is. Because that's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. And then open up his word and read about him. Because that's where he makes us love and cherish and speak about his name. There is nothing to fear if you have a risen Lord and speaking a message, even if the world hates it. I encourage you to read Acts 4 verse 17 where the disciples are told to speak no more in his name. And then verses 23 through 31, where they pray for boldness. And God shakes the very building that they're in. And the church goes out throughout the world and proclaims boldly the message of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given to us today. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us truth, God. I thank you, Lord, that you have spoken truth that unveils and exposes the ugliness of our hearts. Lord, that you are so loving that you take the scalpel and you cut deep into our hearts. And I pray that that scalpel would dig deeply and cut into the hearts of everyone who is in this room. Lord, I pray that you'd expose our great need for repentance. And Lord, I pray that you would bring great joy today in saving many souls from their sins. God, I pray that you bring salvation to this church, God. And I pray for all of those who know you, everyone who is a part of your church, who are your people, I pray that you'd make us bold and courageous. Lord, may you put your message into our hearts and may we preach your word with boldness and with joy wherever we go and leave the results in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.